Hi, I'm Joe Magabo, and apparently I'm here to mic it up, which I guess has something to do with our host, Mike, but uh, we'll see. Welcome to Mike It Up with GoodBed.com's Jeff Cassidy. So when that's the case, it becomes harder just psychologically to make a change. And Mike Magnuson. If you're doing those things, you can be competitive long term. Just when you thought these number crunching data lovers couldn't get any nerdier, they started a podcast. And I know this is pretty controversial, but this is why we're having a podcast, right? But if you want to be smart about how the mattress shopping journey is changing and what retailers and manufacturers should be doing about it, well then, man, have you ever found your people? Because right now, it's time to mic it up. I, th- I hope I was clear that this is the nerdiest podcast on the internet. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a strategy podcast about the mattress industry essentially. So you can't get much nerdier than that. Hey, I uh, was an electrical engineer. So, uh, you know, I I'll, saw I'll, that. I'll geek out with you as deep as you want to go. That's what I was looking forward to. And, and by the way, we've got a lot of things in common. You, it's, you spent some time in Chicago. That's my hometown. Uh, I think you spent some time in San Francisco, which is where I live now. Right. I, uh, I my wife and kids live in the Bay area. Okay. I there you go. To, uh, to Utah. And, uh, and yeah, you, like you said, you're an engineer, as, as am I, as is Jeff. And, uh, and then you're also a musician. Is that right? I come from a family of music, of professional musicians. So uh, Does that mean that you also are a musician or no? I, I, I am also a musician, though. Uh, I'm though clearly you feel reluctant to say that. Yeah. You, you feel yeah. like relative to your family members, you feel unworthy yeah, you know, I, I, in most families if you become the musician you're the black sheep in my family i i abandoned my roots and went into the <laughs> silly business world and uh i I'm, I'm a bit of a pariah in my family. yeah we don't talk we don't talk about him he's just a ceo you know exactly that's, that's exactly how it goes so what is what, what musician what musical instruments did the people in your family play and what do you play uh, my mom, who is a music major and music ed, and her, her primary uh, instrument is uh, the flute. She's a flautist, and uh, uh, though she plays nearly everything. And uh, my brother is a classically trained drummer, but has become a nationally ranked beatboxer. Wow. We need to have him on the that's, podcast. Actually, to do, to do, redo cool, our in- yeah. intro music. Absolutely. Exactly. He'd, uh, he's, he's in a great group out of, uh, out of uh, Denver and Boulder called Face. You should check them out. So is it kind of an acapella group? or They call themselves a vocal rock band. But vocal yes. Vocal rock band. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> we won't tell him that you said yes to that. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to be listening to the Mike It Up podcast, though. So that's going to be, a, yeah, that's going to be an issue. Yeah, because who doesn't? Because this exactly. is the nerdiest show on We have a uh, the huge podcast. following amongst the Colorado vocal rock audience. So, wow. And, and then what about yourself? What What is your instrument of choice? I, uh, I did a lot of piano early on, switched over to brass, mostly trumpet, which I played through college and even into some grad school. Um, and uh, now I'm just keyboards mostly but i'm a hack nice but you still get on there and play a little bit i do i do nice. actually i just bought a new house in utah and one of the attractions is the prior owner was a musician who built a full recording studio into the basement and i'm really excited about oh that. oh my god that is awesome you're speaking mike's language mike is also a, he's a garage uh, musician but you'll later yeah. when you listen to mike it up the music that you hear is mike's music 
And I have to pimp. I have to pimp Mike out. Uh, he made some incredible songs and uh, corresponding music videos with his family during the pandemic. So you'll have to check those out later. They're incredible. So you guys could form so a in mattress case, industry band. In case you're not it. impressed enough by how nerdy this podcast is, wait till you see those music videos. <laughs> They're funny. They're amazing. So, anyways, yeah. But no, I I, I uh, played piano all growing up as well so that's kind of my heritage so I, I enjoy i enjoy music too so it's fun to talk to other people who who uh who like to make music so awesome so while we're on the subject of your background you came out of out of college you were, you're an mba also that's some, another strike against you that we all three have in common and I sold out. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that was really where you got disowned by the family i have to imagine i mean no yeah, fine arts pretty degree. much on my own after that yeah and then you kind of went into the consulting world for maybe a decade or more, bouncing around EDS, Ernst & Young, right? Yeah, I, well, it's, um, you know, on paper, it always looks different than the reality. Yeah, I had an undergrad with an engineering degree. Um, EDS at the time was owned by General Motors. So for all intents and purposes, I worked at GM in mm -hmm. their engineering department and an advanced technology group exclusively focused on GM. It just, they bought EDS as their, okay. uh, as their technology arm, uh, which, which meant I was spent, believe it or not. Which at the time wasn't too now. long after Ross Perot was a national name, right? Like that it was, was, before, is it, wasn't that yeah, before company? he ran for president, but this was, I joined a year after he acquired EDS okay. from Ross. So, I mean, this was, it was very fresh, yeah. um, of the EDS days. Um, the uh yeah so i i um i spent most of that time in detroit well not in some in detroit uh, a lot of the uh you know flint and grand rapids and where the manufacturing plants were so i was i was on the manufacturing floor with manufacturing building engineering systems for them um which uh gave me my first taste of true manufacturing which i loved just loved um and you know clearly that's that's the world i'm in now we're fundamentally yeah. manufacturer here at purple but uh, yeah from right out of college i sort of fell in love with that side awesome and then and then how did you and so then you made this transition at some point into digital media and largely a lot in the travel space like how did how did that uh come I, about because that was the, the the first big transition it seemed like before you then funny. made when the I, big leap to mattresses i mean the <laughs> The, the irony is when I went to business school and came out of GM, I, uh, I really wanted to get out of technology because this was pre-web and uh, technologists were undervalued. I mean, we mm -hmm. were just, you know, we, we were not that different than those on the manufacturing floor. I mean, and uh, you know, my salary was not going anywhere. I wasn't making money. I was watching all these like MBAs and marketing types making big money. And uh, I, I said, tech, that's not the place to be, how wrong right. I was. Right. But uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I went back to business school to pivot. I'm like, well, maybe I should look at this business thing. Um, and of course, coming, I graduated in 96, which is just as the web started, mm -hmm. the AOL days. And, the, um, and I, I still actually tried to stay. I did get into management consulting for, uh, for a handful of years, um, product development and supply chain and a, a number of areas that wasn't tech. But I, I couldn't escape my roots, and the web was was crazy. So in the late '90s, I, um, I, I in business school, I had fell in love with the notion of the intersection of marketing and data. I just, uh, you know, the it was still pre-web. Which you said this was, is '96. That's very yeah, early. Yeah, '94, '95. So that's yeah, very early for then, that concept. 
was, I mean, I, I had a professor named Peter Rossi who was an early, early uh, scholar in, in data-driven marketing, data-driven market analytics. And I mean, what you had then was loyalty programs and credit card data and all these, you know, true data sets and natural studies out there where you could start to truly equate, especially on things like promotion and price theory, mm-hmm. you know, true human behavioral response to marketing efforts. And I loved mm-hmm. that. I mean, it was like I, I was like growing up in an artistic family, storytelling and narrative and that I, I always loved. And, and I liked the data side as an engineer. And I was like, wait, you can have marketing can and data together. And it just light bulbs went off. And you know, then the web happened and it's like, okay, well now you've got a cornucopia of marketing data. So in the late nineties, I, uh, I, I was part of the founding team of a behavioral data analytics company uh, that was really looking at, at early visibility into human behavior on websites and transactional websites uh, and spent the better part of a decade helping to build that company out. We ultimately sold to IBM. Um, And uh, I mean, it was just a crash course on human factors and human behavior and websites and responding to offers and promotions and Mm -hmm. and content. And and, and I loved that. And I ended up flipping that one of our big customers was uh, Hotels.com at Expedia and uh, realized... uh, no one was taking the full power of all this data and uh, got got wooed into stop stop soapboxing and start doing and which is a scary proposition by the way um, of course we've it's, it's jeff and i have both been consultants box. we know how that exactly <laughs> exactly and i realized half of what i said was true was true the other half turned out <laughs> to not be um but at least i was half right and uh Flipped over to the other side, and I've stayed on the industry side ever since, uh, but spent six years at Expedia really doing just that, applying data and consumer insights into action, and and uh, rode a pretty good ride there, ultimately uh, promoted up to running the uh, the U.S. Expedia business, so it was, uh, was running Expedia.com, and uh, then flipped into apparel. And uh, I, I found a, a leader at American Eagle Outfitters who, I mean, his, his pitch to me was stop thinking of us as having a thousand stores, thinking of us as having a thousand distribution centers that we could get product from people online. And, and I was like, holy moly, this guy gets it. That's, mm-hmm. that's not how anyone thinks about this. And this, right. this was, this was you know, 20, this was- 14? What was it? 2012. 2012. Okay. Uh, yeah, around, yeah, around 2012. And, okay. uh, you know, omnichannel was a new word. People were barely even understood what it meant. I mean, right. m- most people, omnichannel was just synonymous with e-commerce, which is sort of the opposite of what it means. Right. Um, but, uh, but I, I, it was like, Hey, and, and, in his mind, it was travel was a decade ahead of apparel and retail. So let's take what travel figured out and start to apply it to retail. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. And I I jumped in and went from being basically a retailer of other people's product. I mean, Expedia is a giant search engine marketplace to actually making product. We sold what we made and it was all bespoke product and first party and love that even more. I'm like, you know, it's ours. We own it. We live or die by what we make, and uh, and we can use data to make better product. And we did. Right. Um, so I really just fell in love with retail and and vertically integrated retail through that. Um, uh, after American Eagle, 
I uh, bounced around a bit, some, a, a little startup retailer that we ended up selling, did some consulting, ended up spending a year and a half of private equity, um, really uh, helping to advise their portfolio companies, uh, which was f fascinating and fun. Um, some great companies I got to work with, spent spend a bit of time up at Lululemon, up in Vancouver, uh, which is remarkable culture, remarkable product company. Um, and uh, ultimately found Purple, which was this amazing intersection of manufacturing and product and innovation and design and engineering and digitally native and marketing. And it was just all these things I'd kind of done through my career came together. And uh, it was like it was the perfect job. It does sound like when you when you lay it out like that, it does sound like a, the, a path that almost had to end with something like purple, or at least not end, but lead to something like purple. Yeah. Did, uh, was and that yes, connection when I was to young, purple? I said, someday I will be a mattress salesman. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that was always the goal. You had to, everyone starts with that goal, but not everyone gets to achieve it, Joe. No. Nope, You're living the dream. The ones. <laughs> All right, good. Well, uh, why don't we do a quick lightning round here? We're going to start with, these are just quick Quick, fun questions here. You're a musician, or you come from a family of musicians. Best music decade of the past 100 years? The last 100 years? Oh, the 80s. Yeah. Full 80s. stop. Okay, nice. Good answer. <laughs> What's something you're terrible at? Something I'm terrible at? Um, basketball. In what, this is a, a summer of the Olympics we're coming into, in what non-sport activity would you be most likely to win an Olympic medal? Is foosball non-sport? I, I count that as a non-sport. Yeah, it's, it's both. not an Olympic sport. That's both. Yeah. <laughs> in college, it's definitely a legit sport, at least in our college. Yeah. <laughs> uh, scale of one to ten, how good a sleeper are you? I sleep on a purple mattress. Ten. <laughs> is that an eleven? What is that? <laughs> That's eleven. Yeah, this goes. We go to eleven. Right. Nice. <laughs> Favorite pizza toppings. Oh, this is a big debate in purple, by the way. Really? Oh, like, like has divided the company. It started with pineapple, yes or no. So uh -huh. in high school, I worked at Pizza Hut. It was one of my first jobs for years. And, uh, and I was like a growing, starving teenager. So I ate like a pizza a day for like two years. <laughs> and when you eat a pizza a day for two years, you, you learn to love all pizza. Yeah. Right. All yeah. pizza. That's also so, how you get uh, bad at basketball is eating a pizza. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, at that age, you can eat. I, I've got a 17 year old right now. And at that age, you can eat anything. Yeah, that's and true. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It just goes in. Um, so, uh, yeah, I actually there is no pizza as crazy as they make pizza that I don't enjoy. But I'd say my uh, my favorite pizza is a Chicago deep dish stuffed oh. spinach and mushroom pizza. You had me at Chicago Deep Dish, Joe. You just passed the character test right there. You're Donnie. You're wow. Donnie. Wait, follow-on question, Boom. not to put you on the spot with the with all of purple, but pineapple, yes or no? I, I I can eat pineapple and ham pizza. But again, all pizza. All pizza. I, yeah, uh, there's no bad pizza. It's the perfect food. What's some advice you'd give to your younger self? Ah, um... You have time. Nice. All right. All right. Last question. What is something that made you smile recently? That's a good question, too. Um, oh, goodness. My, uh, 
Besides the Mike It Up podcast, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I smile at a lot. Life's too short to be angry. Um, <laughs> I, my kids, I, they are just an endless source of joy. I know that's like a total cop-out answer. Um, <laughs> no, it's all right. But uh, my kids give me so much joy. It's all good. <laughs> all right, perfect. Well, that was fun. So, uh, okay, so... Let's start a little bit. Let's talk about product. Um, you know, I think Purple is really interesting as a company in the mattress category because it's really one of those rare mattress companies that is built upon a product component or attribute that truly is unique and innovative and proprietary. There's a lot of talk about those types of things in the mattress category, but this is one where it actually walks the walk, I would say. Um, so talk to us about um, what, what's coming for, for Purple, like, like what's, uh, what's in store for the future of, of Purple products. Yeah, it starts fundamentally to me with backing up and understanding you know, what makes good sleep. You know, and in the simplest sense, it's, it's uh, you know, how do you fall asleep faster? How do you stay asleep better? How do you do everything you can to not disrupt sleep? I mean, anything, you know, whether it's, comfort or temperature or noise or light or motion or anything that disrupts sleep is bad for health. And, mm -hmm. you know, the science is becoming really, really clear that, that sleep makes, you know, better sleep makes everything better. I mean, there, there's almost no medical condition. There's almost no mental or emotional condition or physical condition that isn't made better if you're getting better sleep. And, you know, and, and then the final thing is, you know, fall asleep easier, better, stay asleep longer and wake up more effectively, you know, and, and how do you attack those things? And the reality is, I think the category has stopped. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, if you, if you survey people, human beings and ask them about their satisfaction with sleep, it's remarkably low. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the, the reasons why people buy new mattresses outside of life events, you know, moving or you know, it, it's more often than not is related to pain. It's I, I hurt. And, and even more yeah. remarkable about that is it's surprisingly not tied to age demographics. Whether you're asking someone 25 to 35 or asking someone 55 to 65, you get remarkably similar answers. Mm -hmm. little, you know, the older you get, little more things like pain come up. Um, most people are not happy with their sleep. Most people are not happy with what they, whether it's the mattress or the environment or the bedroom or the, the, the ambience or whatever, it's most people are looking for better sleep. And frankly, there is a lot of snake oil out there. There's a lot of misinformation. I mean, you know this with the work you do sure. that has enormously profound promise, but the reality is very little delivery. And part of that is there just hasn't been a lot of innovation in decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, there really hasn't been. And what's most exciting to me isn't even the mattress. It's all these little startups all over that are starting to attack little pieces of, of sleep health and the sleep environment. Um, you know, none of whom have achieved scale, all of whom are just solving a piece of the total. But you look at it and the amount of money that's flowing in, in venture capital and investment, um, it's remarkable. And you can just see this category is ripe for explosive disruption. I mean, just, just when you've got an unmet consumer need 
and it's tied to human health and the human condition, and the category has failed to deliver, there's opportunity. But, but now all of that lens we're looking through, I mean, I'll just start there. You know, yeah, this yeah. isn't about how do we sell more mattresses. It's how of do course, we tackle yeah. that problem? And, you know, and I can talk about what we've done so far, but uh, I, I'll just start with that premise and ask your questions because clearly well, but, uh, before you go, before you go on, then let me let me ask, uh, you know, because I agree with that premise that you laid out. But it, as it relates to how the how this goes from sort of what you called snake oil to something real, I mean, I think that there's a gap to bridge there that probably has to involve some kind of measurability, some proof points that you can really plant the flag on. And that's one area where I just don't know, like, is the science even there? Because there's so much, there's so many externalities. We have sleep trackers, but there's so many externalities that can't be captured passively. And when they require active capture, they just, the data is not going to be there. So like, and then there's just so much idiosyncrasy that goes beyond like outside of what the trackers can capture that it's not clear that there's actionable result and, and meaningful results to be gleaned from any of the current tracking technology. And without that, how do you establish the measurability that takes this from being slake snake oil to something real? Well, and you're, you're, there's some, some leaps you're making that I, I challenge us not to make. So, you know, first of all, we're not talking about eking out, you know, a, a, a minuscule amount of performance improvement of an Olympic athlete. We're talking about ordinary human beings, the majority of whom, or maybe half of whom, have sleep disorders or, or, or are not satisfied with their sleep. So, so you know, when you have massive gaps and low-hanging fruit, you okay. can have, I mean, it's like barn work. I mean, you, you don't have to have accuracy and, and these minutiae of detail to make meaningful changes. I and see. we know that in sleep. You're I mean, talking about bigger are, picture things. Yeah, you know, you, you just, I mean, go from any crappy mattress to any reasonably good mattress, and you're going to see a significant improvement in sleep. I mean, I mean, th th again, there are big leaps you can make. Um, before you even get into things like sleep disorders and you know things that that, that take even more effort to uh, to solve, um, the other leap is that data collection and uh, and and sleep you know and and improving sleep quality are directly connected because right now data collection is basically a one-sided action. It, it's observation without action. Mm -hmm. And right. and you know ultimately you can do things like biohacking, which is if I truly find some insights and I can correlate that to actions, maybe I can be so self-motivated to change things in my life. But the reality is, and, and this has been played out many times, you know, Fitbit comes out, everyone buys one, everyone tracks their steps. The theory is that if I'm more self-aware of my daily steps, it'll promote me to walk more. And the reality is most people find that it doesn't change behaviors. It, it becomes an interesting, fascinating brief piece of data, and they end up in a drawer somewhere. Right. <laughs> you know? Right, so, exactly. So, you know, how you close the gap between data collection and action is a massive gap that has a huge unlock. And, yes. uh, you know, and, and I, I believe that is one area that there's going to be significant advancement and innovation in the market. Well, and that's the area where I, I felt, I feel like that, that's how, that I was referring to as it relates to 
the in order to make some that data actionable you oftentimes need context around you know what caused this sleep to be bad last night i mean you can measure that but without knowing that the person you know drank five beers before they went to bed or that they ran a marathon that day or whatever it's hard to it's hard to necessarily take that and make that actionable no, that, that's for sure. But, you know, now we're going into the specific versus the aggregate. Um, okay. So, know, yeah, again, so I, I take your point about the yeah. aggregate stuff. Yeah. There's I mean, lots I'm of things you're not everyone has in every night on beers. And if you are, then that is the aggregate. Um, you know, but but it's it's um, again, most consumers don't say I occasionally sleep badly. They say I consistently sleep badly. And most consumers will happily pay some amount of money if they genuinely believe, you know, if there is a, a dream of a potential of improving health. And it's, I, by the way, this is why people join health clubs. This is why people buy fitness equipment. This is why people buy trackers. This is why people invest in all sorts of crazy things. Um, you know, on this promise yeah. of life improvement, the question is, which ones actually drive results? And right. the ones that do the most are, are the ones that figure out working feedback loops and often yep. it's as much about psychology as it is about technology i mean you look at like a peloton you know fundamentally it's a media company i mean it's my own opinion you know it's, it's because they figured out the issue isn't how do you get higher performance equipment the issue is how do you make using the equipment more more enjoyable or, or mm -hmm. you know, better feedback loop while using it, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it turned out it wasn't about the equipment at all. Um, I mean, yeah. or look at a, you know, look at a Tesla, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, hey, every year we're going to release a new model and, you know, have envy on, I should have bought, I should have waited six months. It's, uh, hey, it's a software company. The hardware itself is somewhat fixed, and we're just going to keep making the product better over time. I mean, it's just right. you got to reinvent how you look at this, and no one is. And I, again, I think there's there's opportunity here. Is there anything that, when you look around the category it, and you see in the marketplace, does impress you as innovative? Sure. I, again, on the on anything the you on care the, to comment on? <laughs> no. Um, no. There's a. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting thing happening on the fringes, a lot. Um, and, and, you know, some we may pick up, some we may do our own way. Um, and there's a difference of discovering a real need and coming up with a novel way to attack it and having something that's truly consumer scalable, you know, something mm -hmm. that really works for the masses. I mean, you, you know, the iPod wasn't the first MP3 player. In fact, there were many successful ones out there but they were the first to figure out how to take it to scale. And the mm -hmm. innovation wasn't, we invented the MP3 player. The innovation was, how do we make it you know, easy to use and comprehend for someone who isn't an enthusiast MP3 player person? Right. Um, you know, and, and that's the gap. How do you take it to scale where it's not invasive, where it just works, and, uh, you know, and is easy to wrap your head around and, and is priced for scale too? I mean, that, and that's a lot to figure out. Yeah, it's, it's interesting yeah. to hear you talk about that because obviously Purple Innovation, the innovation for which you're most known and the company is built on is material science, right? Like the, the hyperelastic polymer. Yet what you're talking about here is innovation 
beyond material science, innovation in lots of different yeah, it, areas. So, no, Jeff, it's a and it's easy to draw that conclusion. I, I think we are underestimated as as our innovations are really in two places. One, you're absolutely right, is around material science. You know, we we have come up with novel materials, genuinely novel materials. I mean, we, I've got some PhD chemists running around right now who are having a field day because there is no academic, academic literature that describes the behavior of our materials. We're, we're inventing, I mean, we're, we're doing, we're doing full, yes, full spectral analysis of the materials and rheology and, you know, I mean, all, all these things to understand the behavior of these materials because there's, there's no documentation anywhere. It's our own stuff um, and, and stuff that we keep very tight to our chest. And which, which also, by the way, means, and we use different materials and different formulas in every one of our products. Our pillows are different than our seat cushions. Our seat cushions are different than our beds. Our beds are not all the same. This isn't just like rubber molded into a grid shape or a hexagon or triangles. I mean, we put a lot of science into the materials. But the other thing that really is what's fueled our, our capability to scale is our, our manufacturing. We... we had to invent machines that could do the injection molding and extrusion with our unique materials because it didn't exist. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we have a lot of experience in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, the software that drives these things. Um, it's just been all on more like the industrial side, you know, the, the manufacturing engineering and, and capabilities. We've got machinists and tool makers, and I mean, we, there's very little we can't build. Um, it's just we've always done that around manufacturing, not around consumer. And we're starting to realize we've got some skills that we can put to the consumer side as well. One thing I think um, that maybe retailers would be interested in hearing about and um, is obviously you've got the four main mattress models today. Like all of them are currently utilizing the purple grid. I, I, you just mentioned different, maybe slightly different formulations. People don't even realize of what's happening in that polymer, but nonetheless, that from a branding standpoint, that's, that component is at the core of, of at the heart of all four of those models. I guess what, what might, might an expanded product line look like from here uh, without obviously getting into any specifics of things that are coming, but just, is there a picture of like, for example, one person asked me to, to ask you, do you hate memory foam? Um, <laughs> you know, like, because it's, it's, the, it's the subject of attack in many of the ads. And yet at the same time, it's a material that would offer your products maybe a very different feel and therefore could diversify the lineup in some way that might appeal to new customers. So in that sense, what, what, what might an expanded product line sure. look like? Well, let, let me let me address the do I hate memory foam. Um, <laughs> it's a fair question, and we've had we've had some some creative work out there that clearly is directed toward memory foam. Um, going back to where I opened about sleep health, you know, the the as as you think about a sleep surface, there is a tension that has existed for all time on sleep health around the, the trade-off between support and comfort. You know, support mm -hmm. means you get the body alignment so you know, that your, your, you know, your, your spine, your spine doesn't position. hurt, your neck doesn't hurt, your, you know, it's, 
and, and that actually promotes really good health as you get through the night. But the problem is, to get good support, it's often at the expense of comfort. And what comfort gives you is the ability to stay asleep. It's, you know, mm -hmm. If you are comfortable and not being disrupted, you stay asleep. The, tr you know, the challenge has been there's been massive trade-offs between those. You know, the, the simple way to, to drive more comfort typically is around making a softer mattress. The problem is with softer mattresses is Your you get the hammocking of effect of it's at the expense of, of support. So, mm -hmm. you know, so how do you get support and comfort? And, and with everybody, it's turned out to be a trade-off. You know, you find the balance where you give up either the support or comfort to a point that you get the best overall sleep. But clearly, again, most people would happily take better sleep. So we haven't found the magic combination. Now, memory foam comes along and actually uh, you know, comes up with a novel new way to solve the support piece. Because typically, you know, whether it's coil or foam, you know, the more you compress, the more it fights back. You know, there's mm -hmm. actually a compression curve with both foam and spring, which means as you're shaping your body, which is what you want to get even support, it's fighting you more where you have your pressure points, where, where you're, you're indented more. And memory foam has this miraculous ability because it's, it, it doesn't fight back. It's slow, you know, it's slow to react that it ends up actually shaping to your body, which gives you this, this magical combination of support but comfort. And game changer. And it's why for you know, 30 years now, it's been a dominant premium play. And uh, it's very impressive. And memory foam also has the added benefit back to not disrupting sleep of its, its density, its, its, its structure means you have very good motion isolation. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's their original campaigns where our, you know, the, the, the champagne flute glass in the corner of the bed is the kids bouncing up and down and, you know, it doesn't disrupt your, your partner sleeps soundly when you move around. Yeah. Um, so, okay, game over, done, we've solved it. But it turns out, and by the way, I'm going to preface and say purple hasn't solved it either. We're just all moving forward. We think there's a lot of opportunity for going. But you know, what's the downsides of memory foam? Well, it turns out there's two sleep disruptive downsides to memory foam. One is it's slow to adapt. I mean, that, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And they've spent years you know, with open cell and improving the reaction times. But by definition, if it was instantly reactive, it's not memory foam anymore. Right. You know? So it's, it's how do you get it so that it adapts to your body, but as you're moving around, you know, and, and, you know, in sites like yours, you'll talk about sleeping in the mattress. And mm -hmm. you know, what that means is you kind of get in it. And if, you, if you're in motion and you watch stop motion of anyone sleeping, and it looks like we're running marathons. I mean, you're kind of in constant <laughs> motion as you're sleeping. So how does it not fighting you as you're trying to move around is challenge one. And that's mm -hmm. one of the criticisms people have on memory foam is it's just, I feel stuck or I feel I'm in the mattress. And it's really a statement of it's slow to react. You know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's not adapting to using mode. So that's problem one. The other is, you know, despite all the best efforts, it's, uh, it, it, it absorbs heat and energy. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's just that simple. Um, it, it's the difference of a kitchen sponge underwater. You know, you pour water into it, the sponge fills up with water. It's a very similar cellular open cell, cellular arrangement that traps heat and energy as it's moving through the surface. 
And as it fills up, I mean, you think you put a sponge underwater, as it fills up, at some point the water starts splattering off because the sponge can't take anymore. And it's the same thing. We're, we're human batteries emitting heat as we sleep. And it's why you often go to bed cold, but then wake up hot is because the energy is getting absorbed into the sleep surface. And at some point it can't take anymore and it radiates back at you. So it's just a nature of these foams, like a sponge. It's what they are. There's, and what do they do around that? Yeah, you can use phase change material to have some cooling impact. You can ventilate by drilling holes into it. You can try to put layers that are more breathable than aren't memory foam. Basically, try to make memory foam anything other than memory foam. Yep. So there's some tremendous benefits you get from memory foam, and it really, I think, advanced sleep health forward a lot, but it's not without its flaws. And that's where I'd say, okay, well, let's keep reinventing. Let's, let's keep trying to get, you know, how do you keep moving forward? You know, what we've come up with is, you know, what I'd call a take what's great about memory foam. How do you come up with a way to evenly shape to the human body but maintain support over a large surface area, which our network of columns that individually collapse do? It's very memory foam-like in how it shapes to the human body. You're in the mattress the same way, but because of the nature of the recoil of the elastic polymer, it instantly reacts, it instantly adapts, so you solve problem one. And because it's basically 90% air, it's, it's a giant, it's like pouring water into a colander versus mm -hmm. pouring water into a sponge. The energy flows through. Sure. And I mean, you take, you take the coolest phase change material mattress out there and put it into a lab and look at heat absorption or, or, or heat uh, resistance, thermal resistance. And our mattress, it's interesting. We don't have cooling properties. We have don't get hot properties. We just, you know, you know we, we actually stay cooler after hours of heat radiation in our mattress than the best cooling mattresses out there because we just don't heat up in the first place. Right. And again, this is a step in the process. And by the way, other than our sleep surface, we're a fairly traditional mattress. It's the same foam around the outside. It's the same coil underneath. And you talk about where do we go from here? Well, two things. One, we don't believe we're done on inventing the best sleep surface. So we continually are looking at the material science, the geometry of the grid, the performance of it, and we think we can, we can do better. And mm -hmm. we're going to continue to reinvent there. But there's the rest of the mattress too. And it all plays into sleep quality and sleep health. And we have a lot of work we're doing into you know, the whole sleep experience top to bottom. Okay, that's good. That's very, that's helpful. Um, so does that mean I hate memory foam? <laughs> no, it didn't sound like it at all, actually. You were much less critical than uh, in the ads. By the way, uh, it, it, it was just sort of a, a playful question someone had, had asked because of the fact that memory foam is, you know, in the ads is, is targeted as like the, the negative alternative. But of course, everything you're saying makes sense. And it, it actually reminded me of being in the, uh, a showroom in High Point with Tony Pierce in... 20 what was that like 2014 14. jeff or yeah something? 2014 yeah where he explained to us the nonlinear resistance property of the of uh of the grid and it just blew my mind i was like that is cool that makes a lot of sense but then at the same time i was like man how is that ever going to get explained through an rsa and of course of course it wasn't ever explained through an rsa it was explained through these really clever videos yep. that you guys did and that's really what put you guys on the map and we've obviously done well, but the average consumer, I mean, we, we, um, we're a young brand and a young company, which means we don't score high on trust. 
which no new company does, and even on differentiation. I mean, we, uh, every time we talk about being different, everyone else tries to use the same words. I mean, this is just a trait of the category. You know, we all just pile on top of each other saying the same things. Um, so, I mean, it, there's a little bit of a long game as you educate, and it's one reason our best marketing channel, I mean, we're spending over $100 million in marketing right now, and our best marketing channel remains word of mouth. CSAT and consumers selling the, the real benefits of the product. And you talk about how hard it is to measure the efficacy of something. I'll tell you, when people have been sleeping in your mattress for six months or a year and they're still singing its praises and telling people you should go buy this thing, mm -hmm. that's pretty good measurement. That is and, good measurement. And, uh, you know, that's what gets us up every day is knowing that we're getting that kind of benefit out there and improving, you know, genuinely delivering on the promise. And it's not for everyone and not 100% of our customers are satisfied. And, again, we still haven't solved the big sleep problems, but we're, we are motivated to keep moving this, this advancement forward. Since you mentioned marketing, let's shift gears a little bit to, to that, to advertising and customer acquisition. I want to start, tell us about the decision to, in March of 2020, or I guess it was thereabouts. I mean, you guys did something uh, that, that proved to be incredibly smart, which was you stepped on the gas rather than retreated. Um, and and talk about that decision as well as um, the media channels you ended up relying on during this time and why. Yeah. So you almost have to go back before the pandemic as, as what I, I had us focused on building in the year and a half before the pandemic was essential to what we did in the pandemic. You know, I, I came into a company that had outgrown its capabilities. I mean, when I joined... I mean, we, we, we took $10 million loan from one of our investors in February of, of 19, um, which was a Hail Mary, we need cash or we die, $10 million, and we ended Q1 with $12 million in the bank with that $10 million. I mean, we were at zero. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were unprofitable. We were, we were negative cash flow. We, we, were, we were burning people in, in the manufacturing plant. We had over 100% attrition. I mean, meaning every year wow. we turned over everybody at least once <laughs> on average. Um, wow. So, I mean, it, it wasn't a, a well-run company for our size at that time. I mean, our, we, we had just started with wholesale and, you know, we were, our SLAs were so bad, I would have kicked me out if I were them, you know, and, uh, and um, even customers. I mean, we had some customers who were, you know, it was 45, 60 days and they still hadn't received their mattress. Um, I'm pretty sure that's not okay. Um, yeah. so, you know, we, we had a lot to clean up and a, and a big turnaround in front of us and spent the next year and a half getting really laser focused on the unit economics, on how we drove our business, on what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing and building up the, the foundation, meaning, you know, the right data measurement, the right visibility, the right teams, the right controls, the right processes to actually run a profitable business. And, uh, you know, it's a slog, but we got there. And by the time the pandemic hit, we were already profitable. We were already producing cash. And I had at least the core team in place and the platforms and foundation. So by the time things hit in, in the pandemic, we had a really good data and I had a really good team that we were able to pivot really quickly. I mean, we had the data and we saw, holy cow, 
there's an addressable market showing up here. Well, by the way, marketing costs are dropping, competition's disappearing, people are pulling out of the market, and we're seeing demand and and traffic grow. You know, there's, there's a pretty simple playbook there. You know, mm-hmm. it's if if I mean I you know in the demand gen sense, there is no budget on spend. You, you spend against returns. Right. I mean, until the marginal I, point I, of return. I've worked with companies where I would say, "Hey, if I can guarantee you four hundred dollars back if you give me a hundred dollars, would you take it?" And they say, "Man, that sounds awesome. I just don't have the budget." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "That's crazy." If you can give me four hundred bucks, I'll find a hundred. I'll take a loan for a hundred dollars. You know, I'll I'll give you the hundred dollars every day of the week. Of so I mean, that's that's how you run performance marketing, and we saw that, and we said, "There's no budget, spend," mm-hmm. and we we spend every dollar we could. And normally, you know, there's a there's an efficiency curve. Where, I mean, it's not like, hey, if I double my spend, I double my business. I mean, it's just right. with each incremental dollar you're capturing, it's, it's harder and harder to capture the area under the curve, and you get yep. diminishing returns, and the data's not perfect, so you're kind of getting in an aggregate where half the dollars I'm spending aren't working and half are, and how do you kind of find that, that equilibrium to maximize the area under the curve? You know, that's, that's the goal of performance marketing. Um, but we weren't seeing those diminishing returns. You know, the curve had grown so much that we were spending in and you know doubling our spend and doubling our business, you know, which yep. just never happens. Um, but we had the data, we had the ability to lean in, and we did. And you lean in, and you know you spend every last dollar until you hit that marginal efficiency. And it turned out we just you know turned yeah. the turned the ticket on. And well, tell, tell us about the media mix that you were finding effective at that time, because I think this is an interesting wrinkle in the story as it relates to that uh, what worked then vis-a-vis yeah, like what normally works well and and, and normal is a tricky thing because what happens <laughs> is a channel becomes attractive and all the money flows into it and then it's no longer as attractive and then the money goes somewhere else right. you know, is it video is it not video is it social is it affiliates you know it's a traditional direct mail's coming back you know it's um, and then they get expensive or they get crowded and you go somewhere else so part of part of being a good digital marketer is not falling in love with channels. It's just constantly looking at the performance and finding ways to arbitrage and and get more reach and get more performance. So, yeah, like when when money was pulling back and people got nervous, what they tend to do is spend more money on higher, lower risk channels. So things like um, retargeting. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who are highly qualified, a much higher probability of conversion. They're deeper in the funnel. You know, we saw a lot of money flowing in there because at a period of uncertainty and risk, you end up, it's human nature, you end up spending, you know, where you feel like you've got the most likelihood of getting some return on your dollar. But in reality, what happens is prices go up, it becomes very expensive, and you're not really getting that return. It's elusive. Well, Meanwhile, on top of that, we, at that time, you were also competing for those retargeting avails with every other mattress company every, who was exactly. also experiencing demand in that moment. Yeah. And then in the meantime, like more broad things like PPC, just, you know, Google search terms or things like that money was pulling out of, which historically are like, oh, this is saturated. It's too expensive. You shouldn't be there. So we just we followed the market and we leaned into a lot more of traditional channels where we saw enormous opportunity and 
the lower funnel, more expensive channels were getting crowded and we pulled money out of those channels and we went where the opportunity was. And by the way, those higher funnel opportunities meant at a time that there's addressable market showing up that's new to the online category, you want to cast a wide net. You want to capture those eyeballs. And, right. and you know, in some of this... Weak competition is not a great strategy. You know, I mean, some of this was just we saw an opportunity where I think we went left when everyone else was going right and we'll take it. But that's not a long term play. Like today, over the last year, everyone figured out uh, there's money to make online. We should probably figure this out. And suddenly, you know, it's it's a competitive market again and we got to win on merit. But uh, any time that others miss we're going to lean in. And we did. And it was really it's good. Nonetheless, for an interesting anecdote to tell, I think, just as, as it relates to both how you saw the opportunity as well as, you know, it's kind of I think it's interesting um, that you found success with these traditional channels and that it was really this a unique moment in time where you could go broad, where the economics did work out to do that. But it's it, I find that uh, particularly kind of interesting in the context of the fact that the most of the mattress industry, at least the traditional side of the mattress industry, never left that. <laughs> That's all they've right. been doing. Whereas you saw it as a unique moment in time where that those economics could work. I think a lot of the retailers and other traditional manufacturers out there kind of need to need to put that in more context as to like, oh, that was that worked then, but that's not maybe the normal approach that is oh. going to be. But, but the category has been a very traditional category of manufacturers and retailers. And the notion of having a relationship direct with the consumer, you know, with the exception of like Sleep Number, who went 100% direct, mm-hmm. yeah, there really hasn't been a, a, you know, a, a meaningful play that is a, a direct relationship with the consumer. You, that's what the retailers do. The retailers curate the right assortment and acquire the, the traffic and the customers and match consumers with product. That's, that's what great retailing is, um, right. as well as historically the inventory management side, too. They carry the inventory. They carry some risk, potentially, um, and, and get the product to the consumer efficiently. Um, you know, that, that changed during the pandemic because retail fundamentally got shut down. So suddenly it's who can service the customer. I mean, the, the wild card was does the consumer defer or does the consumer shift how they buy? Yeah, and no what one do you mean by that? Well, if 85% of the premium market is brick and mortar and suddenly brick and mortar disappears, do consumers wait it out? Do they say, you know what, I can oh. go another six months without a mattress. I'll wait till things open back up. To further or purchase. Do they okay. say, yeah, you know, or, or do they say, you know what, I need a new mattress. And if I can't go to my local retail store, I got to find another way. How do I buy a mattress? And, and mm-hmm. again, we're not... The, the the stuff you buy in Wayfair and Amazon or, you know, Ikea or wherever, I mean, that's not us, you know, and, and those great companies, great businesses, great, great, you know, great models, but it's, you know, it's more the commodity side of the market, um, which yeah. is high unit volume, but not a lot of margin. Um, you know, we're on the premium side, which is a more, you know, it's, it's a bigger price point. It's a more considered purchase. It's a more discerning customer. It's a little more competitive product to product. Um, and it's been very traditionally brick and mortar. So, you know, I, I think part of it is, you know, yes, how do you think about the marketing tactics? But the other is how do you even service that customer? And this was a very unusual time where brick and mortar wasn't an option. Right, right. 
What, what do you think? I mean, one of the things we, we see, though, consistently from Purple is and we like to look at trends of uh, branded search queries, you know, and just as a barometer of marketing sure. effectiveness. It's a great. Uh, I think it's a great sign of our signal for how many people out there are being are, is their curiosity being piqued about your brand? Um, this is a chart that Purple has really dominated from the get go. And to your credit, I mean, they. I think coming into when you joined the company, it was it was 2018. They were coming off of uh, a couple of years of very successful viral videos. Yeah. But the viral videos, I mean, it's it's like uh, I come out of the media space, so the you know we think of entertainment or content as hit driven, and viral videos, viral ads, you could almost think of it in a similar way, like. It's hard to just say like, oh yeah, that's our strategy. We're just going to keep doing viral <laughs> super well, but hits. Um, but but nonetheless, when, my point was going to be that you've kept this going. Like this, the uh, line for purple has continued to go up and to the right, yeah. uh, even but, but since I, I, then. Yeah, what do but, you do better but, than others in this regard? I, that's the question. And, and Mike, we lost our way. Yes, we have continued, and thank you for that. But um, we actually, our strategy when I joined was keep doing viral videos. I mean, if you signed up for our email series, the promise and the benefit in the email, like, hey, Mike, I, I think it said, whoa, exclamation point, like we're Keanu Reeves or something, you know, and, uh, you know, and it, and it said, congrats on signing up for our email. Um, you're going to be the first to know when we release new content or new videos. I mean, it was like we're a media company. Right. And what happens? I, I started looking into the demographics of engagement on all these views, and it was indexing young. It was indexing male. Uh, you know, the affinity groups we'd see were like, you know, technophiles and gamers. And, you know, and then I look at the category, and I'm like, oh, well, it indexed a little older. It indexed a little more female. And it's like people who like home and travel and fashion. So there's, um, you know, it's almost like a, a dopamine rush of this feedback loop of success of we're getting the views and they love it and we're getting positive feedback. But is it actually translating into our core mission, which is what these videos were intended to do, of educating our customer about, a, a, as you said, the, the, how do we get the RSAs or, you know, how do you directly hit hit the customer and say, hey, there's something different here that we want you to, to learn? Mm -hmm. And we became more funny than educational. And we came more about the hook of virality than the hook of getting people into a better night's sleep. We lost our mm -hmm. way. We lost our way. And, and we also had been in a pattern of rapid fire content, constant test and learn and see what worked. We were okay if things, if things didn't work. And we started to put more pressure on ourselves that it had to always be hits. And it's almost like the mm -hmm. movie industry where you end up with these colossal yes. bombs, you know, it's, and we had some big bombs and, uh, part of it was getting back to our roots. And like, I, I get a lot of inspiration from Dyson. I, I it's a company that I, I would love. I, I would be thrilled if we could somehow emulate their success, you know, a real innovation and engineering driven company that got its first decade and a half in one category, but dominated that category. But they also built a real brand connection. I mean, I, I same in mattress. I'll ask people. It's like name four vacuum cleaner companies, mm -hmm. and you know, people get to Dyson, and it's amazing how quickly it falls off. Um, yeah. Mattresses are a similar thing. What what mattress do you sleep on right now? It's like uh, yeah. I don't know. I bought it at Costco. It started with an S. Um, yeah. 
you know, and uh, the, you know, you can have a big company brand in a category. It doesn't mean you have any real consumer brand connection. It doesn't mean it's a coveted brand. It doesn't mean it's a lifestyle brand. Um, you know, you can name manufacturers of appliances, but most of them aren't coveted brands. Um, and that's what we, that's what Mattress was. It's an appliance. It's something you buy. It's often been referred to as a grudge purchase. Um, as you do journey mapping on the process, it's not always a positive one. So part of the goal was, hey, if consumers really love our product and if we really have something different to offer, how do we get back to our roots and really focus on celebrating that customer, celebrating the benefits and leaning into, you know, their, their happiness? And, you know, we've gotten less wacky funny we're focusing a lot more on the real consumer benefits. And a lot of our social is around our customers and the benefits and what, you know, and, and influencers that genuinely, you know, have found great use of our product. I mean, we're trying to really get into the reality of it. You know, and that doesn't mean we lose our way and we, we take ourselves too seriously or there isn't some joy or whimsy. I mean, we're not going to ever lose that. Um, but this is, it's a serious need. It's a serious subject. And... You know, I, you know I, I'd say there's nothing funny about a good night's sleep, and we, we were making a joke of it. And, right. you know, we, we were getting back to our roots and really focusing on who our customer is. And you do that over the long haul, and you build a real brand connection, and you rebuild a real relationship. And it happens. I mean, we see it in interesting ways. I mean, we're, we're selling now more pillows and seat cushions than we are mattresses. And more than half of those pillows and seat cushions are to customers who are new to us. They haven't bought a mattress. Mm -hmm. And they're buying into the brand. They're buying into the benefit. It's, it's not just a fashion play. Hey, we've got the purple tag on an otherwise high-quality pillow. You know, they're buying into the product differentiation, and we're building that connection. And that's the goal. I, by no means have we solved it. By no means are we there. But how do we build a sustainable heritage brand that really connects with people? It means that, and that opens up the right, all these things we want to do. It all starts with trust. It all starts with a belief that we're going to do what we say we do. And that's the focus. And we just, yep. it, it's relentless. Every day we focus on this. You were talking about uh, the, the traditional brick and mortar retails. And obviously that's a channel that you guys have, um, leaned into a lot. Yeah. What um, you've now been in traditional retail stores for what, like three years or more now? Over three years. Yeah. So, what have you learned from that about what works? You obviously have pretty much all the geographic coverage you need just through your partnership with Matt Firm. What What do you What have you learned from just all of your partnerships in the brick and mortar retail space that has given you a sense of what you're looking for in a retail partner like what makes for a great retail partner for purple yeah it's and you know I, I, more than half of our sales are the furniture stores we're in you know separate from mattress firm mattress firm's still our largest single partner but i mean we've we've sort of matured our approach a little in that there are there are different journeys and people buy in different places have different relationships specialty mattress retail is obviously you know, they're the single largest retailer of mattresses out there and, and a terrific partner. Um, but part of this is be where the customer is. And we're discovering there's different journeys and different desires in different places. And how, how do we be where the customer is, which is sort of a general omnichannel approach. Mm -hmm. um, you know, finding partners that are willing to invest and recognize that this isn't 
just a gimmick, that this isn't just another brand on the floor, um, you know, makes a big difference. Um, and, uh, you know, those who can sell the story and bring the product to life, it drives, you know, I mean, it's been, you know, we, we are often the highest converting mattress on the floor um, because we have a different story and it's again, not a gimmick. It's not just, just snake oil. There, mm -hmm. There's uh, there's something to it. And, well, and uh, presumably part of that is attributable to the fact that you've done a good job on the front end of educating that consumer before they even got into the store. We, we do. And, then, and, you know, and this is part of the... Uh, the win-win with retailers. We're driving foot traffic into the stores and, and e even driving a different demographic into the stores than they've, they've seen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, they may come in looking for purple and sometimes they may get sold up into a temper or some other, you know, so, I mean, you know, it's giving traffic that the retailers are able to monetize. Sometimes we get the sale, you know, there's sometimes they come in, try the product out and buy from us. Um, but again, it comes down to consumer choice and, you know, we, we don't, try to steal that customer away it's different customers have different preference and there's you know it's symbiotic you know mm -hmm. they, they profit off our traffic we we profit off of the brick and mortar presentation and it's been really good for all parties sort of the, the you know the rising tides raise all ships um and uh you know but but fundamentally you know what we realized is this isn't about distribution this is about experiential you know, our goal wasn't how do we get boxes on shelves. Like a lot of the uh, a lot of the bed in the box players have looked for retail distribution, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's it's more a CPG play. It's how do I get inches on shelves mm -hmm. and displays. Um, what we realized is that's not the game here. The game here isn't how do we just get the logo out there or or be available to be put into a shopping cart. It was how can people experience our product if it's so different and hard to explain. I mean, I, we, we can do all the videos we want. It'll still never be the same as laying on the mattress with an educated sales associate who can talk to you about it. That's what we needed. And what we've looked for is partners who are willing to give us the square footage, give us the presentation, and are willing to be educated to mm -hmm. sell the product. And, you know, and this is where, like, Sleep Number, I think, ultimately, if you go back to sort of when they, because they used to sell through wholesale partners, I mean, when of they course. took it in-house, their big beef was they, uh, you know, at the time they didn't feel that the, the sales associates were doing their product justice and they realized, okay, they just had to do it themselves. I, I think that pendulum swing isn't necessary. You know, I, 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 I think you can give more credit to the sales associates of these, uh, these terrific retailers. Um, but I get the problem. You've got to find the opportunity, if you've got a differentiated product, to find retailers who are willing to present well, merchandise well, and take the time to get educated. And it's all about experiential selling. Yeah, I mean, it's rare that, I mean, when I look back on that decision from Sleep Number, I, I think of it as, um, it's rare that the differentiated, unique product is going to be the path of least resistance for that RSA right. to sell. Right. And so, therefore, it was just an, a structural impediment <laughs> when you're trying to sell through that channel for someone who, who, who right. is unique and differentiated. Oh. You guys have, have really done a great job. I think, I think, well, put it this way, this, this technology, this purple, this grid technology has been around long before purple and, and all the success you've had. I think that the fact that you were able to go direct and communicate this message to the consumer in your own words probably is what has enabled it to now find success in retail where it really never did in the decades prior. Um, yep. So 
that combination has been very very effective. Um, but the uh, as far as the the retail partners, so I'm curious. You've got now what ten of your own stores at this point, or so ten ish. Yeah, I think we're officially at eleven right now. If you're if we're counting. Um, okay. So yeah, eleven have, have stores. Pipeline. Yeah, we'll we'll twenty twenty five more by the end of the year. Um, we've got a very strong pipeline going right now. Oh wow, that's pretty. That's that's more than I would have thought. Throughout the country, or still geographically concentrated. Um. Well, I, we're you know we're right now in D.C., Columbus, Texas, Southern California, Seattle. Um, I mean, it's 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 it's. I mean, with only eleven, you're not going to get you know that many DMAs. And we've learned having a couple of stores in a DMA is is better than just one and spreading ourselves you know polka dot all over the place. I mean, we're we're picking DMAs. And, and getting some uh, some brand penetration there, um, but uh, no, it's it's a. I mean, it, it's interesting what we can do in our own showrooms that we can't do in a in a retail setting. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example, and this is something we were doing pre-pandemic. Interestingly, we spend so much time trying to make the mattresses look good, and part of that is just wholesale. When you're on the floor next to all these other mattresses, you want your product to stand out. Sure, and it's kind of silly. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, what's the inside of your shoe look like? I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that once you buy it and, and put a protector and sheets on it, you never, you almost never look at the product again. I mean, right. the product is designed to not be looked at. Felt, yes, but not looked at. So why do we spend so much time? It's where I also get fascinated by all the feel of the mattress and the, you know, the, the, the PCM, the phase change materials. It's, it's so buried by the time you actually have it. Um, Very true. And in our own showrooms where you would think, oh, here we can really bring our beautiful mattresses to life, what did we realize was a huge consumer unlock? It's people don't like laying on naked mattresses, especially ones that they know or in the back of their head they're thinking about a whole lot of other people have laid on. And this was pre-pandemic. Yeah. So, and we also, by the way, you know, we put a lot of engineering into our sheets because it turns out if you put a really tight woven sheet over a mattress that's designed to locally displace of weight, course, yeah. you actually just kind of baffle or, or, or mute the benefit. Yeah, it's got to uh, have some stretch. Music terms there. Um, you know, the, uh, the benefit and uh, our, our sheets are a big part of the story uh, and our protectors for that matter. So we cover all our mattresses with our sheets in the store and they all look identical. They all look identical because we use the same color sheet to just get a consistent look. And we change the sheets daily, every day. It's fresh sheets, which sadly is far more often than most people change their own sheets. <laughs> um, we change the sheets daily. We get daily laundry service. And uh, it's always fresh sheets. And it's familiar. It's how you engage with a mattress in the real world. It has the added benefit of we sell more sheets. Um, yeah, yep. but it, it starts with the consumer, and the showrooms have just been an amazing way for us to understand the consumer better, engage with them, and learn that you know through the journey mapping how they really think about the product, how they engage. I mean, like like a, a, another simple design thing we did is it's really weird to lay down in a mattress in public. Mm -hmm. It's just awkward, and uh, you know, and then you know some mattress retailers have created like little partition rooms or, yeah. you know, curtains, but it turns out that's weird too. Anytime yeah. you go into a closed room <laughs> and a mattress, it just conjures up all sorts of things that no one sure. wants to talk about out loud. Yes. So 
yeah, so like we came up with these louvered walls. I think it's just remarkable what the team came up with, where in the store looking to the, to the exterior where the mattresses are, it feels very open and spacious, which is what you want in retail. But when you're laying on the mattress at the angle of the louvered walls, which are like just half length of the mattress walls, it creates a optical barrier where you don't see the beds next to you. And you sort of have a sense of, of space and intimacy in your own mattress, which is what you want when you're laying in it. Yes. And it's just, again, it's just, we've been really focusing on that consumer experience and you know, it's some, a, a very weird public thing to do. And how do we make it comfortable and familiar? And we can only do that in our own showrooms. And are you then trying to feed some of that success, some of the what's working over to your retail partners or? We do. And it, it comes through to the website too. And our, I mean, we, we, uh, I'm a big believer in humans. I mean, I'm a, I'm a digital guy who loves people. And part of it is, you know, websites are very impersonal. They're very mechanical. They're great for self-service. They're great for mm -hmm. automation, which, you know, commodities and replenishment, it's great. But when you're talking about a very emotional considered purchase, not the best platform. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, 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 who we're choosing in our wholesale partners, what we're doing in the showrooms. The other thing we're doing is we're leaning in very heavily into our contact center. We have hundreds and hundreds of agents now. Um, when I joined, 1% of our sales were through chat or phone. I mean, it was of our online sales. I mean, it was, and that was almost accidental. Mm -hmm. uh, my credit card fails, I need help. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's way into double digits now. I mean, we, we could feasibly this year, on a run rate certainly, but on, a, on an absolute basis, it's not unreasonable we could do $100 million of business through our contact center this year. Wow. Um, but it's all about the power of humans and that experiential selling and helping. I, I learned this in travel. I mean, it just, it's a really powerful technique. And what we learn in showrooms, we bring into the contact center. In fact, by, by the way, when the pandemic hit, we had to close. We, we had six showrooms at the time. Um, it ultimately went down to five. Uh, we had, because some of them were pop-ups. We had to close the showrooms. And... Uh, the question is, what do we do with this labor? Do we just follow them? Do we let them go? I mean, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, we weren't leaning as hard into selling over chat, and we pivoted them all into chat agents. And they sold the heck out of... They, they actually, believe it or not, in total, they drove more sales through chat than they were driving through the showrooms. Wow. Which then creates a tough dilemma as showrooms started to open up. I'm like, do we put them back to work or do we keep them where they right. are? Right. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And it turns out it's, it's not a choice. It's an and. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, uh, but it all comes from this idea of learning how to engage with the consumer, leaning into humans that are really good at this, and taking – I mean, I envision a day that, you know, you're on – chat or phone and we can patch you directly into an associate in a store who can walk you through the product kind of one-sided video i mean there's so much that can be done here but it yeah. starts with the consumer and understanding how we can best service them and leveraging all of these ways that we have to to create that experience um I'm curious, I want to ask you about like the ultimate, what I consider to be the ultimate self-service e-commerce website out there, which is of course, Amazon. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, uh, Amazon's had a huge amount of success in the mattress category, as I'm sure you, you know, Yeah. we look at Amazon and we have just a fundamental concern about their platform as it relates to kind of the future of this industry. 
Um, we sort of see Amazon providing mattress brands, for that matter, any brands, with really kind of two key ways to win. It's price and ratings. And as it relates to the mattress category, we found that, that cheap mattresses just kind of fundamentally are advantaged in getting good ratings, particularly when they're asked after two weeks or whatever Amazon asks. Yep. And as a result, when you take that out, then you're basically just left with price. And so it becomes not just a coincidence that the cheap, that the best-selling mattresses on Amazon are the cheapest ones. It's almost like just that's the only way the story could ever end. And so I'm curious as to, from your standpoint, as you think about Amazon, like what is your strategy and do you have a vision for how a brand like Purple can actually win long-term on Amazon? Because I'm not sure we see a path for that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> betting against Amazon is rarely a successful strategy. Fair. I saw a tweet about a year ago, which was, uh, you know, if, if Amazon's in your business, get out. You're, you're going to fail. If Amazon's not in your business, get out. You don't have a good business. You know, it was, it was something along those lines. Um, yeah. but, but, but I actually think you can compete with Amazon. Um, you, you, and in, in my, I, I, I've, I've framed it as there's three ways to compete with Amazon. Um, the first, which is what we do, is have, have premium product that people want to buy that only you sell. So and not on Amazon. Yeah, there, there are a lot of retailers out there. I mean, I mean, think about like, um, you know, a lot of apparel. Your your Gap brands, or your American Eagles, or Abercrombies, or go on, you know, on and on. I mean, the, they basically only sell through themselves. They're vertically mm -hmm. integrated brands, and there's a lot of brands that have leaned that way. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, there are whole categories that are basically directing automotive. I mean, you buy you buy an Audi from an Audi dealership, not from Amazon. Used car, not maybe, yet. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, so so have bespoke, differentiated, premium product that consumers want to buy. I mean, it has to be something that there's demand for that only you sell. Yep. Um, that that's one way. The two other ways, which aren't directly relevant here, I, I think I've differentiated supply. I look at like ThreadUp or the Real Real or you know companies that have found a market and have captured, you know, cornered the market on supply um, that Amazon doesn't currently play in is, is a way to compete. And the, and the other is differentiated service. Um, Amazon has been less of service focused. And if you add some value added service on top of a product that Amazon can't offer, which by the way, can be things like in-home setup and delivery or mattress removal. It's not to say they mm -hmm. won't get into those things. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, there's a commodity play there. And I, I also, I lived in apparel through fast fashion, which is a wave that comes like once a decade or so. Um, quality does matter to consumers, especially with durable goods. If you're buying $12 jeans and after six months of washing, they fall apart, you start to go, you know, I need to go back into my Levi's that I can count on that I've been wearing for five years or six years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's same things with these mattresses. You know, you're in the industry, that a lot of these mattresses, you're going to be sleeping in a divot or two or three years. And you Absolutely. could say, oh, well, it was only $300. I'll just buy another one. Uh, but I don't think consumers want to get into that cycle. It's just unlike the denim, which might fail in 90 days or 120 days, this might take years. But I 
do think you've got to take a long view here in durable goods. And over time, I think some of these things will play out. I think people will start to realize, hey, you can buy this, but don't plan on using it for more than a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And that, that, is, that will take its course. It's just obviously, and we're starting to see some of that now. It's been at it for enough years that you're starting to see some of that backlash. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that's part of it. Um, but the other is recognizing, I mean, you're hitting on commodity versus premium. And exactly. Amazon has tried and tried to figure out premium. I'm sure they will at some point. They've had less success there. It's a different kind of selling. I mean, 75% of mattress units sold are commodity. High volume, high engagement, high activity, high reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not where the money is. I mean, that's, that was one of our first observations was two-thirds of the industry revenue was on the 25% of units that are premium. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of premium sold on Amazon. And it's a right. different buyer in a different journey who has different expectations. And, and I, again, we don't, I mean, we could talk a lot about what's wrong with the commodity side or the value side of the industry. Um, I don't lose a lot of sleep on that because it's just not where we play and it's where we're not having a lot of interest. So, um, yep. and by the way, I, I, the other challenge there besides Amazon in, in a traditional sense is when I look at the top, you know, four of the top six retailers of furniture and mattress are Amazon, Wayfair, Ikea, and Walmart. And all four of them have vertically integrated in, in mattress. Mm-hmm. Ikea has been there for a decade. Forever, yeah. Yeah, forever, decades now. Um, yeah, Walmart with all's well. And both Wayfair and Amazon have launched house brands. Um, yep. Which, of course, in commodity with thin margins and high unit count or, you know, high volume, I mean, of course, they're going to vertically integrate. And that's not unique to this category. That's how you win. Um, I mean, most of Costco's revenue, most grocery stores, it's all house brands. And uh, when I was on the purple, I was on a purple page on Amazon earlier this morning just to see like what you what you guys were doing on Amazon. And right there at the top of the page. A similar product to this item was the rivet mattress for eight hundred dollars less than a right. king size. Yeah. So yeah. there you it's, have it. So you know, we we do a very small single digit percentage of sales on Amazon and it's mostly the it's mostly advertising. And by the way, Amazon has figured out that media is a big unlock for them. They're becoming one of the largest ad platforms out there. And we actually yeah. do a lot of innovative advertising. I mean I, I I was on uh, I was on Amazon. I mean, we, we can we can talk negatively about Amazon all we want, and then we go home and spend thousands of dollars on Amazon. Um, of course. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I was on Amazon last night, and I saw an ad for I think Comcast. You know, it's it's a big media platform now, and we actually do a lot with Amazon ads, and and it is a valuable place for us to get our message out there and reach customers. So. Amazon is going to be an important platform for us for making sure our brands out there, our names out there, that we are in the consideration set. But it may not be the traditional, you know, put it into the basket and get prime delivery two days later. Um, right. It's just in premium. It's it hasn't proven to be a platform that we can win at. I that's super helpful and insightful. I'm sure it's for for anyone out there who's thinking about these types of questions of whether to list their products on Amazon and so forth. For what it's worth, I'd add my two cents as it relates to even having your products listed as a kind of advertising or awareness thing. I I think there's a risk holistically if all products are listed on Amazon of just 
it makes Amazon more viable as a research channel. And the more time people spend on Amazon as a research channel, I think the greater chance they have of trading down to an ultra cheap mattress. So I'd actually, I think it's actually a risk that maybe brands ought to contemplate about whether it's even worth having the brand, the products on there in the first place. Because I think if consumers don't find the products they're looking for on Amazon, they go research them elsewhere. And that takes them out of that destructive race to the bottom kind of environment. And that's yeah. probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, we, we are very anti-race to the bottom. I don't know if you remember a couple years ago for April Fool's, we, uh, we, we launched a fictional $1 mattress to just end, you know, right here, right now, we're going to end the race to the bottom. <laughs> this is it. A $1 mattress. <laughs> We win a race. Grid. Unfortunately, it's the size of a matchbox, um, but, <laughs> but you get the purple grid and it's $1. And I'm, I'm thrilled to report that two years later on April Fool's this year, we actually launched our little mini squishy bed for sale. You can buy them today and we are selling a crazy Ma number. Of um, matchbox sized mattresses for a dollar? Uh, three dollars, I think. Come in a little, it's, it's three dollars with shipping and handling um, or, or 30 for 30. Uh, <laughs> 30, and, you get 30 uh, of them for 30 bucks <laughs> yeah they make great gifts and party bags and favors and kids love them um and uh in fact a crazy tiktoker this gets into just the strength of the brand he figured out that if you connected i forget the number i think it was like 820 of these little mini mattresses that you can make a full dimension of a queen mattress which, by the way, we sell the Queen mattress for $1,200. So he, he hacked purple and figured out that if you buy these 30 packs, he can actually get a full purple grid for <laughs> hundreds of dollars less <laughs> and uh, created a, a TikTok video about it that has gotten over 10 million views. And we had nothing to do with it. We don't even That's know the awesome. guy. Mm, I guess. Um, so it's just it's it's fun to see this stuff take off, and and some of it again is just build the brand, be true to who you are, and let them go. But that's also that's a brilliant little idea because you're getting each each purchase is an experience of the hyperelastic polymer, and it's marketing, and it's marketing that you're actually getting paid for. It's great. That, that's right, and we actually you know we we give a coupon back with everyone you purchase, so it's technically free. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think right now it's three bucks for them, the mini mattress and you get a $5 back toward any purchase. So, uh, you know, we're, we're paying you to try it and, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. That's great. Uh, Joe, we are, we've taken up, uh, of sensitive to how much time we're taking up. I, I want to ask you one more question is simply, is there anything that I didn't ask you or we didn't ask you that we you think is important? Um, it's, a well, your focus and our discussion has been about mattress and we're going to, we're going to dominate there. That's, that's our aspiration is let's get as many people sleeping better as we can. And we think we're going to continue to push things forward at our core. We don't think of ourselves as a mattress company. I mean, we just, we, uh, we see so much opportunity. I mean, I'll just, I'll give you, this is, this isn't necessarily good economics, but a passion of mine. I hate airplane seats. I want to see an airplane where every seat is purple seat cushions built in. I like <laughs> I that. that. Something fierce. Um, yeah. But it just, just even saying, wait, wait, what does that have to do with sleep and mattresses? Um, you know, there's so much potential here. And uh, to me, that's More to part do with of the comfort. excitement is, hey, while we have this 
highly lucrative opportunity to help with sleep, and that is where we spend most of our energy. It's so much fun to think about how far we could take this thing once we get our footing here, and that, that's, that's the real excitement with Purple. Great. Awesome. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap it up. Joe, it's been awesome talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope, uh, I hope it wasn't too painful for you. And uh, yeah, we, we'd love to, love to do it again. I, there was so much more that I had on my list of questions for you that we didn't get to. So maybe, maybe, maybe down the line, we can, we can revisit this. Happy to. And keep up. I love what you guys are doing. Keep up the good work over there. Appreciate it. Well, speaking of that, uh, thank you all for listening. And you know, if you like what you're hearing, please Subscribe, leave us a review in the Apple iTunes uh, store. Uh, It helps other people discover the podcast. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and we're out.